Hello, listeners, and welcome back to VoiceOver Work and Audiobook Sampler. Where do you listen? Today is the 8th of May, 2022, and today we may just have your next great listen. This is your host, Russell. This episode is the chapter-by-chapter preview of Albert Rutherford's Neuroscience and Decision-Making. This book, according to the author, breaks down the chemical and physiological events in the brain that leads to sometimes unwanted choices. Instead of labeling yourself as someone who always makes bad decisions, shift your perspective. The solution's not personality-related, it's awareness-related. You can overcome your brain's natural decision-making tendency, but to do so, you need to understand the brain's urges and work with them rather than against them. Let's hear more from Albert Rutherford's book in this chapter-by-chapter preview. Chapter 1. How is decision-making researched within the field of neuroscience? Decision-making research in neuroscience requires determining the average activity of groups of brain cells over hundreds of trials. Neurons communicate by sending out quick bursts of noisy electrical signals, which occur amid a flurry of other brain activity. Neuroscience is so important for analyzing decision-making processes that certain researchers refer to decision neuroscience. Decision neuroscience is about finding key decision variables related to certain brain activity parameters. The most important groups of decision variables are 1. Value 2. Uncertainty. By discovering what effects these variables have on neural decision-making, e.g. measures of brain activity, we can learn how to improve our decision-making processes. The first two are more important for this chapter, which is why we'll focus on them, while the effect of social variables will be discussed elsewhere. While being complex and abstract, neuroscience can also be applied to everyday life. First, Let's see the most important findings of decision neuroscience and then discuss how they can be applied to -to day-to-day decision-making. Value In decision neuroscience, value means the value of a reward. This can be anything from a physical reward, money, food, to solving a task or attaining a goal. The way you think about the reward also determines your decision-making processes. This is manifested on the neural plan through increased activity in the ventral tegmentum, VT, a subcortical part of the brain. VT activity is often marked by increasing dopamine levels, which sometimes peaks when the reward is attained. I want to emphasize the word sometimes. While dopamine is labeled as a pleasure chemical, things are not that simple. It's been shown that dopamine levels and VT activity are the highest while primates, for instance, are receiving a reward. However, after many trials, the primate's response to the reward itself weakens, while the anticipatory response increases. In other words, dopamine isn't only the pleasure chemical, but it's also the anticipation of pleasure chemical. Why is this important? The answer comes from an unexpected place, psychoanalysis. Why? The difference between dopamine as a pleasure chemical and 
dopamine as the anticipation of pleasure chemical, is analogous to the difference between the concepts of need and desire, which have been at the center of post-Freudian psychoanalysis research. Need involves a certain lacking. You need food because you're hungry. You need sleep because your body and mind have to recharge to become refreshed and alert when you wake up. Desire is different. The things we desire are not necessarily things we strictly need for survival. We desire someone to love. We desire to be someone else. While everything about the concept of need is oriented towards the crucial moment of satisfaction, desire is more about the whole process. While pleasure is often the climax of desire, this doesn't mean that desire is only about pleasure. More so, desire is about anticipation. It's the long months of getting to know a person, and it's the process of attaining a goal. Perhaps this sounds a bit abstract. Essentially, findings from Decision Neuroscience. Chapter 2. The Role of Heuristics in Decision-Making We humans do a lot of our decision-making on autopilot to free up cognitive resources for more difficult decisions. How? By using heuristics or mental shortcuts. As our brains evolved, they created heuristics that are great in, say, 95% of situations. It's that 5% when our cognitive shortcuts can get us into trouble. To mitigate the negative effects of heuristics on our decision-making, first, we need to become aware of them. This chapter will show what heuristics are and how to avoid mistakes related to their overuse. Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, 1974, are two cognitive scientists who devoted their careers to the research of human decision-making processes. They realized that people make systematic mistakes when given certain tasks. Errors in judgments aren't random. They follow specific patterns grouped under different heuristics. Kahneman received a Nobel Prize for furthering this research, the only psychologist to date to receive this award which is a testament to the importance of Kahneman's and Tversky's findings. Kahneman's Nobel Prize is in economics. There's no such award for contributions to psychology, because his findings help to make sense of how people make financial decisions. Heuristics help solve similar problems with the same solution. They are unconscious and automatic mental shortcuts that allow people to make judgments and solve problems quickly and efficiently. Heuristics are unfairly demonized across literature. They're not inherently good or bad. On the one hand, heuristics make our life easier by allowing us to use a simple set of rules in various situations. We don't need to think about how to type on our computer, brush our teeth, or cross the street. Thanks to this, we can devote our energy and mental capacity to more complex problems that demand more attention and conscious effort. On the other hand, Heuristics make our life harder if we use them indiscriminately. They're a double-edged sword. Let's take a closer look at the most common heuristics identified by Kahneman and Tversky. Availability Heuristics Consider the following title of an article published by Al Jazeera News, 16 Killed After Plane Crash in Russia's Tartarstan Region. The article later mentions the cause of the accident, engine failure, 
and the fact that the plane crashed shortly after taking off. Many individuals were injured or killed as the plane hit a parked van when it fell to the ground. Only by reading this article, one's brain may alter its impression of how safe flying is. Why? Because the proof that planes crash is more readily available in one's consciousness. This, in turn, will affect one's future decision regarding the choice of transportation method. This is the availability heuristic at work. Even though flying on an airplane is still the safest means of transportation by a long shot, since a plane crash gets plenty of publicity, one may feel flying on planes is unsafe. Consider the shock wave felt by the entire airline sector after the mysterious crash of Malaysia Airlines Boeing. This crash was all over the news, and it influenced the decisions of millions of people worldwide, resulting in diminished profits in the airline industry, at least for a while. What would be a more rational way to integrate the information relating to, say, plane crashes into your decision-making process? Chapter 3. Distractions Imagine this scenario. Jane has just been assigned an important project at work. It's intimidating, but she knows she can pull it off quickly and satisfactorily if she puts her mind to it. The next day, she sits down in front of her computer and begins formatting an outline to follow as she progresses. It's looking good. Things are moving along nicely. Suddenly, Jane hears the chime of a notification ring out from her phone. She picks it up to see what it is. A friend with whom she has dinner plans later that day sent her a message. The friend, Sarah, got an intense craving for sushi instead of the previously agreed Italian food. She wanted to see if Jane would mind eating sushi instead. After going over the menu, Jane agrees. She then puts down the phone and resumes her work. What was she doing again? She can't remember what she was typing about anymore. She goes back to reread her preceding work and, oh, that's right, she remembers now. She reorients herself and continues the project. When Jane reaches a particularly difficult section in the assignment, she has to sit back and problem-solve, but as she turns over ideas in her mind and weighs different options, her favorite song starts to play on the stereo. She can't help but hum along with the melody. She begins to reminisce about when she saw the group in concert several years ago. She hopes they have a new album coming out soon, as it's been a few years since their last one. Come to think of it, she's not seen in a while the shirt she brought from the merchandise table at that show. Did she lose it? She shakes her head and snaps herself back to reality. This is not important right now. She tries to regain her train of thought, but it's disappeared. She's forced to go back and reestablish the context of the problem and put herself back in the right headspace. She glances at the time and realizes that half the day is already gone and she's not gotten nearly as much done as she'd hoped. This is an example of the impact distractions can have on our focus and productivity. This chapter will provide insight into how distractions affect the brain, our decision-making, and daily life, and how to mitigate these effects. The Control Network The control network in our brains is designed to help us filter out unwanted and unnecessary information or stimuli that will negatively affect the decision-making process. It suppresses the default network and keeps us focused. This has the effect of improving reaction time and reducing the likelihood of making mistakes. 
The control network is the cause of what is known as a flow state, or a period of sustained focus and productivity. It's also the reason, despite what some may believe, that we are ineffective multitaskers, as the control network prefers to zero in on a single task or decision, rather than multiple tasks simultaneously. Typically, multitasking makes a person inefficient at both tasks, rather than getting them done quickly and accurately. Good decision-making is based on using only pertinent information and ignoring distractions by allowing the control network to do what it's made to do. However, the control network is imperfect and can be undermined or overwhelmed by distracting influences. Irrelevant information sneaks in and muddies the water, preventing us from acting quickly. Impossible to ignore stimuli swoop in and steal our focus away from the task at hand. This can be seen in situations such as a constant barrage of emails and phone calls preventing someone from focusing on their actual job, or a person stopping to browse the internet while they work, which divides their attention. Chapter 4. The Role of Emotions in Decision-Making Reason is often treated as the opposite of emotions. We view the former as logical and analytical, while the latter is seen as impulsive and subjective to the current mental state. Frequently, it's assumed that carefully calculated reasoning is required to save us from making quick, rash decisions fueled by our emotions. However, we often overlook scenarios where our emotional impulses dominate our decision-making, and for good reason. A classic example is our fight-or-flight response. Our fear, elicited from a perceived danger, allows for a snap decision to either stand our ground and fight or flee from the threat. Taking time to analyze the situation and learn all the facts may prevent a timely response, potentially leading to bodily harm or even death. Incorporating emotions instead of suppressing them allows us to optimize our decision-making abilities. There are many scenarios where it is impossible to know all the facts. Either they are unavailable or the situation is too complex. In these situations of ambiguity, it's been observed that we prefer an intuitive approach when reaching a decision, choosing to trust our gut. Time constraints are another example when using one's intuition leads to a decision, such as the example previously mentioned, where one is in imminent danger. However, choosing between reasoning or emotions should not be an either-or situation when determining our course of action. An integrated approach allows for the facts surrounding a situation and our own feelings to be combined, allowing for the most optimal decision. The somatic marker hypothesis was developed as a neurobiological theory to help explain how emotional processes guide or bias our behavior and decision-making. This theory indicates that emotions manifest as bodily states in response to the presented decision and the different options for behavior. An example would be a rapid heartbeat and perspiration in response to an option perceived as disadvantageous. There's an interplay between the neural systems causing these bodily states and the neural systems that map them, which creates these somatic markers in response to our emotions surrounding the decision at hand. Multiple studies have been conducted to portray the significant role emotions play when making rational decisions. They primarily focus on patients who have damaged parts of their 
orbital and medial prefrontal cortex and patients with injury or disease involving their amygdala. Let's go over an example. A patient was known to suffer from a rare recessive condition called Erbach-Weith disease, which leads to bilateral calcification and atrophy of the anterior medial temporal lobes. Therefore, the amygdala is also extensively damaged due to its location in the hemispheres. The patient was shown to have no motor or sensory impairment or deficits in intelligence, memory, or language function. However, she was found to be unable to recognize the emotion of fear. She had a limited concept of fear and was unable to recognize fear in facial expressions. She also had a limited ability to experience fear in situations where it was warranted. While having no fear may seem like an advantage, living without fear deprives us of appropriate social behaviors and making advantageous decisions in critical scenarios. How to modulate our response? Chapter 5. Free Will and Willpower Free will is a difficult and nebulous concept to discuss. Some would say that it's a fundamental aspect of the human experience and is ever-present in all moments of our lives. Others contend that free will is an illusion, that the inescapable nature of cause and effect renders our choices to be preordained and immutable. But while such philosophical conundrums are certainly fascinating, an unequivocal answer to the nature of free will is likely impossible to reach or even define in a way that can be agreed upon. The mechanisms that govern our sense of free will and our decision-making process are much more concrete, and how our perception of free will influences our relationship with choices. It is in this way that free will and willpower are intertwined. Generally speaking, Willpower is the measure of a person's ability to restrain their immediate impulses and desires to achieve a better long-term result. Things like choosing not to eat that snack we're craving because our physical health and appearance are more valuable, or choosing not to stay up late to finish a movie because otherwise we'll be tired and unmotivated the next day, are both examples of willpower at work. Willpower is often described as a limited resource that can be depleted, but it can be strengthened over time through practice like any other skill. Willpower serves to help us make more rational and worthwhile decisions overall. If we have a strong belief in our agency over our lives, we tend to have a more positive relationship with decision-making and problem-solving. If we believe we're masters of our own fate, Willpower becomes easier to nurture and maintain. This chapter explores the mechanisms behind these concepts and how they affect our decision-making. Readiness Potential When the time comes to make a decision, the first step in the process is considering the available information and making a conscious choice before enacting that decision, right? Well, According to experiments conducted to measure the brain's electrical activity during decision-making, this may not actually be the case. Subjects were observed to have elevated brain activity, ranging up to 1,500 microseconds, before they reported having made the decision to act, suggesting that what we interpret as a conscious choice may, in actuality, be the result of involuntary 
unconscious impulses. These electrical signals can even be used to predict when the subject will act and become aware of the decision to take action. This may suggest that our brains make and enact decisions entirely autonomously without engaging the conscious portion of our minds. Then, the conscious portion is informed after the fact and left to contextualize those decisions. These unconscious signals are known as the readiness potential. Intention Our recollection of the intent to act is greatly influenced by the results that occur after having acted to the extent of creating false memories, attributing failed inhibitions to purposeful decisions, and even altering our perception of time. This arises from the way our brains process cause and effect, as well as our reaction time. In experiments regarding intention, the subjects pressed a button and were presented with an audible tone that was delayed until slightly after the button press occurred. Upon later questions... Chapter 6. Should we or should we not rely on our gut feelings? Have you ever gotten the strange sense that something was off in your stomach while you were driving down the highway, and then a few miles down the road you saw a police car hiding behind a bush? Perhaps you turned down an invitation because you couldn't shake the feeling that going would end poorly. Your gut was trying to warn you that something was amiss. One of my strongest memories of this occurring happened when I was involved in youth soccer as a child. Tryouts for the older children in the program were held every year and the best players were taken onto the A and B teams. Everyone else who was left over would be gathered onto the C team. Needless to say, the C team wasn't very good. The first year I tried out, this was the team I found myself on. I thought I'd performed well enough at the tryout, but I didn't make the cut in the end. The C team didn't win a single game that season. When the time came again for tryouts the next year, I remembered the intense pressure I felt and the frustration and disappointment that resulted from the experience. I decided to skip the tryout this time around. However, it didn't end there. My parents and I received a phone call in the following days from the coach of the B team. He told me that they missed seeing me at the tryout and that they were hoping that a player of my caliber was not leaving the league. He invited me to join the B team, bypassing the tryout entirely. I was ecstatic. This was my chance to finally play on a team with players I felt could give me a fighting chance to finally win, but something felt wrong. The entire time leading up to our very first practice, I couldn't shake the feeling that I was missing a crucial detail, that something was fishy about the whole thing. I felt like I had a sour knot twisting in my stomach. My gut was adamant that something was not right. When the first practice finally arrived, my gut's nagging was confirmed to be legitimate. The other players that were arriving were all my old C-team teammates. We'd all received the same phone call and bed-fed the same lines. To this day, I don't know if there weren't enough players to fill the B-team's roster that year or if it was a misguided attempt to boost our self-esteem, but either way, at the time I knew I'd been tricked. The B-team didn't win a single game that season. So, what caused my gut to be so insistent that something was wrong? These gut feelings can feel like magic or even precognition when it happens. Obviously, in reality, this is not the case. There are myriad reasons that our intuition tells us what it does, 
and creates these instinctual feelings that are seemingly pulled from the ether. Let's talk about how that happens. The gut-brain connection. Before we get into how intuition works, let's discuss why it seems to affect us physically. Upon reflection, it seems strange that a cognitive process can cause physical symptoms such as nausea and butterflies, but there's actually a physical connection between our central nervous system and our enteric nervous system, ENS, that closely ties these seemingly disparate systems together. In growing literature, it's been observed that actual visceral sensory stimulation engages different regions of the brain called the insula, INS. For instance, activation of the mid-INS and interior INS is seen with gut distension in healthy individuals. However, activation of the anterior INS has also been observed when we expect visceral pain, example, stomachache, supporting the belief that specifically the anterior INS is also involved in processing. Chapter 7 Neuroplasticity. What is neuroplasticity? For decades in our neurology study, the conventional wisdom surrounding the development, maintenance, and longevity of our brains was assumed to be preordained and linear. We were born with the set potential and healthy brain lifespan, and once we left adolescence, our brains ossified and began their inevitable decline. However, as research into neuroplasticity has progressed and the focus shifted from the measurement of decline to methods of improvement and reversal, this conventional wisdom has changed. Neuroplasticity is now believed to continue throughout our lifetimes. Neuroplasticity is the ability of our brains to change as a result of our actions. We can engage in activities that keep our minds sharp and improve our memory, skills, and general well-being, regardless of how old we may be. This even applies to recovering from traumatic brain injuries such as strokes or physical damage to the brain sustained in adulthood, previously believed to be irreversible. We now know that the brain is an active and highly malleable learning powerhouse that will continually evolve throughout a person's entire life. How does it work? The brain is a complex beast, and therefore numerous interrelated processes are all in some way responsible for neuroplasticity occurring. The first one we'll discuss is chemical. In the preliminary stages of neuroplasticity, such as when learning a new piece of information or skill, chemical changes improve short-term memory and initial improvement of a motor skill. This is the first step in introducing true physical change in the brain and promoting healthy neurogenesis. The next grade up is structural change. Through repetition over a long enough period, the physical connections of our synopses strengthen, the same as if we were exercising a muscle. This is more closely related to our long-term memory and motor control, and lasts a longer time than chemical change, although, like any other part of the body, it must be maintained. The final and most exciting aspect of neuroplasticity is functional change. This is when entire brain networks and pathways are restructured or created to serve new skills or purposes. These networks become easier to activate and more efficient the more they're used, and over enough time, they become semi-permanent features of the brain, so long as they're not allowed to atrophy. 
This can be observed in someone gaining new skills like playing an instrument or learning a new language. Also, it's the system through which someone with a traumatic brain injury can recover functionality over time as their brain rewires itself to compensate for the damaged parts. These three systems work in conjunction and allow our minds to be surprisingly flexible. New pathways are formed, old ones are discarded as new skills are gained, and obsolete ones are forgotten. This gives us the tools to learn, create, and stay healthy. Why is neuroplasticity important? The perception that our minds and thought processes are set in stone is a tough one to shake, but it is crucial to our well-being to recognize that our brains are constantly changing and are as susceptible to exercise or neglect as the rest of our bodies. Regular periods of stimulation and engagement are vital to keeping our minds performing at their best and remaining sharp well into old age. As our understanding of how neuroplasticity works continues to grow. Chapter 8. Virtual Reality to Learn About Bodily Consciousness I creep slowly up to the corner of the cold, gray, concrete tunnel I was making my way through. I peek around the corner, but I quickly pull myself back as a trio of menacing, crab-headed figures are lurching around in the open area ahead. Did they see me? I don't think so, but regardless, they are blocking my only way forward. They've got to go. I ready my trusty pistol and take aim as I step out into the light. The first creature lets out a strangled cry as it begins to stumble toward my position, alerting the others. Now the fight is on. My aim is true, and my first shots strike the shambling thing dead center. But its resilient flesh absorbs the punishment, and it keeps coming. I remain calm and retreat into the hallway behind me. A few more shots, and finally it drops. The other two are now nearly close enough for me to reach out and touch. But I'm ready. I pull my shotgun out and bring it to bear on the monsters as they raise their arms to strike. Two powerful blasts make short work of the grotesque things, and now they lay unmoving on the floor before me. It's safe now. The adrenaline slowly fades, and the tension leaves my limbs as I cautiously search the following rooms. I come across a well-equipped workbench hidden among the faded countertops and empty cabinets. Excellent. This will be my chance to improve and maintain my gear, before pressing onwards. I'm just about to begin. But then, I hear my cell phone ring. I suppose I should see who that is. So, I reach out to put my pistol on the table in front of me, and my controller clatters embarrassingly to the floor through the empty air in front of me. In the more rational recesses of my mind, I knew I was playing a video game. But the virtual world I was in was so convincing that the automatic parts of my brain forgot and began treating as real. This effect has been widely documented and recreated across the scientific world. Let's talk about some of what they've learned. How Virtual Reality Fools the Brain Technology has allowed us to do amazing things as a species, and since massive computing power became more widely available and advanced, we began tests using virtual reality to explore the boundaries of our minds. The variety of available technologies with distinctive characteristics can be grouped into two categories, non-immersive and immersive virtual reality. 
non-immersive virtual reality uses tri-dimensional environments created by computer-generated imagery, allowing us to explore in a virtual space. Immersive virtual reality involves a tri-dimensional environment with an immersive visual interface, such as virtual reality glasses or immersive projections. Since virtual reality entered the fold, surprising discoveries have been made regarding how easily our brains can be fooled using simulated environments and virtual bodies. They will often respond to virtual stimuli as they respond to true physical reality. Using this effect, virtual reality has been used in several therapeutic and experimental contexts, such as exposure therapy and embodied medicine. The current most popular hypothesis about why our brains can be so easily tricked by virtual reality is complex and astounding. It's known as predictive coding, which suggests that our brains are constantly running a simulation of our environment and our physical bodies to the end of... Chapter 9. The Role of Mindfulness Mindfulness, or keeping one's attention on the current moment without overt judgment or emotion, is an ancient practice. It began 2,500 years ago as a derivative of sati, an important Buddhist tradition, combining that idea with Zen philosophy, vipassana, and Tibetan meditation techniques. There are many different methods and offshoots of this practice over the centuries, but in modern times, it was people such as John Kabat-Zinn, Richard J. Davidson, and Sam Harris who codified and popularized its modern version. The current iteration of mindfulness has been used for various purposes, both on a personal individual level and in the world of business and finance. The practice has been shown to have a wide range of benefits. It reduces harmful emotions like depression, anxiety, and stress. It improves physical aspects as well, such as weight management, athletic performance, and even healthy aging. However, the most relevant benefit to our discussion is the effect that mindfulness has on decision-making. Those who practice mindfulness tend to make less emotionally driven less risky, more rational choices. Let's find out why. The Techniques of Mindfulness Meditation There are several ways that mindfulness can be practiced, but every method is based on the idea of keeping our focus on the here and now. They are meant to promote a sense of self-awareness and observation of both our physiology and our state of mind. These are to be acknowledged and accepted without being judged as bad or wrong, simply observed. The goal is to take in these impressions with a detached sense of study, almost as if we were watching someone other than ourselves. One way of going about mindfulness meditation is known as watching the breath. Using this technique, we're supposed to sit in a chair or cross-legged on the floor and simply take note of the sensations of breathing or the rise and fall of our chest. We're not meant to attempt to slow or control our breathing, only to feel it and exist with those feelings. In doing so, we may find that our minds begin to wander, but we are not to become angry or upset that this has happened. We passively acknowledge that our mind has drifted away without judgment and then return our thoughts to our breath. Another common technique is the body scan method. This involves taking note of specific areas of the body and the things that these areas are experiencing. For example, we might start with the top of our head. 
we may be feeling a slight tug or tickle as a breeze moves through our hair. The breeze feels a little cool. Then we might move down to our neck. The muscles feel a little stiff and sore today. We feel them tense and twitch occasionally. We would make these sorts of observations for as long as we had decided to meditate that day. The final technique that we'll discuss here is focusing on sounds, sensations, thoughts, and feelings that occur in the present moment. In this method, we're not meant to refocus our thoughts on specific observations, but rather allow the present moment to proceed naturally and take in everything as it happens. These can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It doesn't matter, as long as we remain in the present moment and accept what we observe without judgment. The goal of mindfulness meditation is to cultivate greater self-knowledge and wisdom. However, it's also demonstrated its ability to achieve positive effects in many areas of the mind and body. Mindfulness supports better well-being overall. Mindfulness. This has been Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? I'm Russell, founder of Newton Media Group and producer of Voice Over Work. You can find us at newtonmg.com. If you have feedback on today's episode, you can email us at podcast at newtonmg.com. We'd love to hear from you. Join us again next time in four days for another audiobook that could just be your next great listen. <laughs>